What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have John Haber, who's co-founder of Giant Spoon, an agency that was established in 2013, has offices in Los Angeles and New York, and frequently appears on lists of winning things, such as A-lists and effectiveness award-winning lists and creative idea-winning lists. And we're going to talk about that as well as trying to stay proactive during quarantine. So welcome, John. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. I, look, if people have listened to Sweathead before, it's no secret that having been in the US for about nine years, I, I came here with big dreams and the dreams were to do good work at scale, which was what I said to myself. It's probably a silly thing to have said to myself, uh, especially coming from a smaller market that is, I think, quite irreverent. And uh, we expected good work in large agencies every, every month or two. And my experience of working in agencies in New York was it's very hard to do good work at all. And it's way more political. You're getting shipped around to business parks all around the US and uh, you might be in a really conservative city, not realize it because you think you're there to do the work that you've always done. And it, it led to quite a bit of the culture shock. And, and then the question like, how, how do you do good work in, in the US? And Giant Spoon's obviously got a good reputation. I don't suck up interviews, but I, I think objectively speaking, you have a, a, a good reputation. And so the, I, I just want to talk to you briefly, or at the start of this at least, like how do you create an agency now and manage an agency now that is seems like hell-bent on doing good creative work and, and have it survive? What's the secret? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the secret's hard to sort of commoditize, but uh, it, it's an interesting question. And I, I, I think it makes me think about the entire history of, of Giant Spoon from where we started to where we are and how we got the opportunities to pitch work that didn't look like traditional work in a lot of senses. Um, I, I mean, I think when, when you look at the U.S. and you look at the scale and the size of it, I think that's sometimes what waters down the creativity because you have so many different audiences. Every state, every city, every county has its own culture. There's no monoculture. And, and a lot of times that hamstrings brands to want to have to make something that's going to work for everybody. And then that that's a lot of times what hurts the work in that bureaucratic political process that happens on the client side. But I think one of the reasons we've been able to navigate around that is goes back to how we started. And, and we were able to start at a time when all of the disruption that happened to advertising and content and technology and media had happened to a large degree already. And so we're starting in an environment where we knew what we were stepping into. And then our service offering was just, you know, four, five interesting people from different backgrounds, strategy, creative, technology, talent, experiential, that were through relationships, getting inside of agency ecosystem, the clients that already had broader agency ecosystems. So they, they had a creative AOR and they had a media AOR and they had a PR firm and they were letting us in to just pitch the stuff that nobody else was pitching them. Uh, and that as a starting point, uh, allowed us to sell some things in those early days that were a little crazy. And we didn't even know if we could pull them off at the time. And we figured it out and we were scrappy and, and we didn't care what format those ideas uh, took form. They could be film, they could be experiences, they could be media partnerships. It didn't matter. Um, and then I think when you look back at that being successful and then as building a real agency and a real operational system and a real culture and real departments around that starting point allowed us a license with our clients to pitch things that they didn't expect their agency to pitch or mm -hmm. to come to them with ideas that they didn't even brief us 
to get those ideas. We just knew their business and we, we had that proactive relationship or that relationship when before we were playing in the more AOR type space where we could just come in with something crazy. Uh, and I think that's, that opened a lot of creative doors for us because mm. we, we weren't in a box. So, you know, there are agencies like Anomaly when they first started out. I think they got a lot of those kinds of budgets, which is where you got your stable, big, not that you're not stable, but you got your predictable relationships. Why don't you give us a little thing on the side? There's, I think there's another agency in LA called Mistress that has had a similar positioning. And then I remember Zeus Jones opened up the General Mills budgets in Minneapolis by, with a pretty similar use case. Uh, and, and then over time, I think what can happen with agencies that start like that is that they, they want bigger relationships, more predictable relationships. And so that use case of we'll pitch you what others weren't or what others aren't, it can dull a little bit. Yeah. Is that still a really big part of your DNA? It is, but it, it's a great point because, I mean, we, we had our sort of, we, every year, except for this year probably, we've done an, a retreat. Um, in the past, we would bring the whole company to go somewhere, whether it was Montana or upstate New York or some, you know, glamping site in Santa Barbara, whatever it was, and talk about the biggest issues of, that we were going to face in the next year. And honestly, the one we had last year, this was pretty much the primary topic of conversation outside of sort of, we've gotten much bigger really fast. So how do we operationalize that? Then the second part of it is how do we maintain our DNA uh, and exactly what you're talking about as we get bigger and as we actually have really you know, large volume-based assignments that we need to manage for clients when we're doing, you know, asset creation for global ad campaigns. How do you get out of that every now and then and be able to come, still come to those clients with those crazy ideas that they didn't ask for or that don't fit the brief neatly? So that's something we talk a lot about. We're productizing it internally where we call it spoon shots, sort of, sort of moon shots, but of course, use, uh, playing with the, the spoon pun, which we tend to do constantly, even though I try to stop, the, I try to limit the spoon puns and the giant spoons that are hung on the wall. That's limited as much as possible. Well, and, and also to mix the metaphor, until I see a leadership photo of the, the four or five or however many of you are there are now spooning each other on a yeah. couch, <laughs> you, you haven't fully exploited the, the pun or the mixed metaphor potential of the pun. I got to tell you, there was once a photo shoot in like our first year where I think it was for like a, like Mashable or something was doing a profile on us. And the photographer, who was an independent photographer, had me and my partners kind of smash up against the glass of a conference room where we were basically looked like we were spooning. And we were just kind of naively listening to the photographer's advice and, and did it. And then immediately after he left, we went, oh my God, we have to get them to delete that photo. It's literally... <laughs> <laughs> the most embarrassing thing we've ever done. And I think we expunged that photo from, from the planet. So it should never come up. Well, I guess uh, that's what Photoshop's for. Just, yeah. <laughs> just in case any of your employees are listening. The, the yeah, one, I'm sure that'll happen now. The, the uh, other, there's, there's a couple of challenges in the topic that we're talking about. I, I yeah. think one is that most agencies, their public story lags behind their private reality. And you might, as an agency, if you're pitching work that's exciting, exhilarating and, and work that the other agencies aren't doing and then you're winning it and you're making it and then you kind of have to deal with these bigger projects that might have more, more bureaucracy in them. They might not always be as exciting, but you're attracting people to work for you who want to do all the exciting stuff. That yeah. can lead to a little bit of sometimes like this existential tension. Have you found yourself butting up against that as you've, as you've grown? 
Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I think we try to be careful about the work we take. Uh, I mean, in, in normal circumstances to, to make sure that they're hiring us for what we're good at. Uh, and we have taken clients in the past that have hired us because of they read an article or there was some connection and it sounded interesting and, and we took the business and then they just didn't want any of that kind of stuff that, that, that makes us special. I mean, I, you know, I, I think there are so many people who can make a beautiful, amazing film and we can too, and we have, and there are so many people who can make you know, great design and great ad campaigns. And, and we've invested a lot in competing at the highest levels there. But those things that we call spoon shots, those things that have made us famous, the, the West worlds, the, the stuff we've done with HP around with Christian Slater and the Wolf series and like the stuff that really put us on the map. If they don't want that kind of thing, and we keep pitching it and pitching it and pitching it, it becomes annoying to the client and, and it becomes annoying to our people and then no one wants to work on that business. So it is a challenge that we're constantly dealing with, but it comes down to making sure that we have the ability to identify that in, either, in the pitch process of a, of a new client. Mm. Um, and the, the hard thing is, is every RFP that comes in for a pitch says the same thing innovative, out of the box, disrupt us, push us, you know, all, all, so everyone says it, but you kind of have to ask some questions in those early, those early meetings to suss out if those clients really mean it or how much they mean it. They might mean an incremental push. Uh, you know, you might be working with a, you know, a restaurant chain that says it and then they really, what they meant was, you know, don't get rid of our limited time offers, but just make them a little spicier. Um, so, and that's not really what you should hire Giant Spoon for ultimately. How do you suss it out in like a chemistry dating pre-contractual situation? Yeah, I, I, think, it's, I think it's asking a lot of questions uh, in the Q&A that aren't just designed to make you look smart, but are interviewing that client to see what their appetite is. And, I, and those questions are different all the time. But, you know, I didn't come up with this, but someone gave me the advice to ask, why are we going to lose this pitch? And when you start to ask that, you start to kind of get the things that scare clients and that make them unhappy and that uh, annoy them. And you start and maybe, and sometimes from that, you can get little clues that A, inform the work ultimately with those answers, but sometimes they, they reveal clues that this client may not be for you and what you do best might not be what wins this pitch. And especially in the new business pitch process that sucks up so much time and energy to go down that road for a client that doesn't really want what makes you special uh, is something we really try to avoid. Yeah, it's, uh, sometimes you get a little hoodwinked, don't you? You know, how do you, if you've signed the contract, you're already working with people and you're like, hang on, we're at round three, four, five, or maybe you limit yourself and how many rounds of reviews and how many rounds of ideas you present. But how do you keep a track on that? Assuming that the founders aren't in every single meeting and presentation, how do you communicate that through the company? And then how do you talk as a, as a company and as a group of managers about what to do about it? Yeah, no, that's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, we're still pretty involved at the sort of founder partner level with our day-to-day -day client activities. So you can start to see that stuff. But that's one of the things I was kind of mentioning as we sort of productize our idea of spoonshots is in these, almost the scoping phase with these clients to put something in there that says, 
I don't know, on a quarterly basis, we're going to come to you and you have to give us the opening to just have a blue sky meeting, a meeting where we can pitch you those things that you didn't ask for that are unexpected, that are grounded in strategy. Like we should know your business enough to know that we're not pitching you things that are just cool innovations for the sake of it, but that actually have a purpose for your business, but are pushing the envelope of what you're comfortable with. Uh, are not necessarily advertising uh, the original IP content, new business models, uh, whatever it may be, just giving us that space to do those things. And then over time, if they never do any of it, it gives me or one of my partners at the highest level the chance to go to whoever our most senior relationship is at the client and say, hey, over the last three quarters, we've had our blue sky meeting. We've pitched you these crazy ideas. You have rejected them all. Is it because we're off strategically and we don't understand your business as well as we think we do? Or is it because there's a bureaucratic problem in the way that work gets sold through or funded that maybe we can talk about? So uh, I think forcing that conversation is the best thing we can do to, to, to sort of say true to whatever, because our clients want to do that kind of work too. And sometimes mm. it's just processes that hold them back. Mm. Well, speaking of processes, like how do ideas flow through your company? Is it, is it hierarchical? Is it flat? How, how, do, how do ideas work their ways around the buildings? Uh, it's, it's very flat. I mean, I think one of the things that's actually been a process challenge for us is that because of that heritage of starting with just a, a mixed bag of people from a mixed set of backgrounds, we don't, um, we've had a little bit of a different approach to the creative development process where there's a lot more people who have a lot more uh, opportunity to bring ideas to the mix. Um, and sometimes when in our early, I think we've gotten to a place where we figured it out a bit more, but we've had to do a lot of thinking about that, how that works, especially as our creative department became bigger and more sophisticated that we were bringing in creatives from agencies all over the uh, all over the country of, of different sizes and scales and, 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 and styles and then telling those creatives like, oh yeah, it's okay if the strategists and the account people and the media people uh, are pitching ideas in the creative development process, which if you don't control that carefully and, and how that works and who gets to judge those ideas and who has the final say and, and how those ideas ultimately work themselves into a bigger campaign idea or into tactical ideas, it can cause a lot of tension between the, those, those, those skill sets. Uh, so it's something we've really obsessed about of how to flatten where ideas can come from, but still protect uh, people's ability to specialize and do their jobs, which has been a big challenge for us, but definitely something we've made a lot of progress on. Yeah, I feel there's a, a missing role in a lot of agencies, which is someone who's essentially like the, the creative showrunner or the, the idea leader of a team. And that person could come from a variety of backgrounds, but their main goal is to make sure that the best thinking from that team gets squeezed out of them and respected also while respecting the specialization of the members of that team, because you can't have a creative department and then say, hey, everyone's got ideas and your ideas are going to compete with them. I mean, you can say it. It's just that it's, it's, it could demotivate a lot of people. Like it's, yeah. And I just don't think there's always like the leadership on a project within a team. Sometimes it's a producer doing it, but then that can feel uh, more like an organizational leader versus someone who's, I guess, essentially like a spiritual leader of the project. How do you create an environment where ideas are welcome from everybody, yeah. but also that their specializations are respected and skills are respected. 
So we got obsessed with this idea of a round table and to the point where, you know, speaking of our employees making fun of us, they, they cut together a promotional video that made it look like we were starting a cult around obsessing with circles because we talk about the round table so much. But uh, the round table is essentially, uh, depending on what the services we provide for any given client, having a representative from each key area that is ultimately over, you know, making final decisions on what we do for that client. So typically it will look like, you know, someone at the, at the sort of VP level of strategy, uh, at the, you know, GCD, ECD level of creative and account director level of account. And occasionally, depending on the, 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 the work, uh, a person from social or a person from experiential could be included in that roundtable. But the idea is that roundtable is one level above the working team, the team who's doing most of the ideation. And that team is a mixed bag of people that have roles that come in and out of the process. Uh, but then ultimately, the ideas get presented to the roundtable. And then that roundtable can discuss those ideas away from the working team. Uh, and like, if it ultimately is a creative campaign that we're building, the creative lead will have kind of more say uh, in what happens ultimately, but it, it creates a process where the work is being judged, not by any one department, but by kind of a council of, of people who represent different perspectives. There's always a sense of the Scandinavian culture in low hierarchy uh, companies is quite interesting. And then as far as the management team goes, and especially the founders on a scale of, they're always on my shoulder to, I never see them in the office. Where do you all calibrate? Uh, I, I think we're closer to always on, on your shoulder. Um, <laughs> I, I, but, you know, I, I think that's something that as an organization that grew quickly, uh, we have had to figure out how to delegate. And also uh, a lot of people in our organization grew up with us. So they, you know, we've been around for seven years. So the first couple of people we hired uh, the, the first handful of people are all still with us, which I hope means that they like us, but they have grown up and they've learned how to be managers and they've learned how to go deeper into their skill sets, but they didn't necessarily become leaders and managers at larger institutional organizations. They, they, they learned it here. Hmm. Um, so we've, we've learned to empower those people more and more. And then now that we're at a certain scale, we're, we're hiring some more people who do have deep institutional knowledge and we're trying to hand off some of those things and figure out what are the things that are important for the partners to still hold on to. And I think some of those things are making sure the, the work at, is still pushing at the highest levels, maintaining those super senior client relationships up to the CMO level to make sure that we're having those conversations we just talked about, about are we doing the best work possible? What are the roadblocks in our way? What, what else can this agency be delivering for you? Those senior client relationships. And then new business, being out there in the marketplace, uh, bringing new people in, uh, developing new relationships, talking about our, our vision and philosophy on the world and getting that, that message out there. Uh, when you, that's really probably what we should spend our time doing. But in reality, we do you know, a certain portion of that, but then we're also pulled into you know, finance and HR and operations and then reviewing work that might be you know, too low down the funnel. Uh, we're still doing some of that. So I think that's part of the evolution and something we keep getting smarter about as we grow. Mm, are there things in particular, tasks or responsibilities that you've personally found difficult to let go of? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's interesting because my background and, and my partner's backgrounds are 
don't fit neatly into any bucket, which is probably why we talk about that a lot with the agency. But as we've grown, I've sort of, um, for, the, for the parts of the business I oversee, my partners do it as well for, for different parts of the business, but I, I have to act as chief creative officer, chief strategy officer, the head of account management, and, some, and, and overseeing our production department, things like that, and, and, and the business of it and the, and the quality of it. So of those things, I, I think, you know, the hard thing has been, you know, letting, giving over control, creative control, I think, of creative work uh, and learning to, to trust folks. But we're starting to get in some more senior creatives that I'm really excited about that are taking more and more of that leadership. And I feel myself pulling back mm. more and more, which, which is, you know, surprisingly enough, is exciting. Um, it, it's an exciting feeling when the machine is just running on its own and whenever I feel that, the clients are happy, the work is good, we're making money, all of those things are happening and I'm not doing much, I don't feel threatened. I feel so excited by it because then I start to think about, all right, what else can I build? Uh, and I think that's when we're really firing on all cylinders. Yeah, that's that shift into thinking of the business as, as a set of systems that you get to improve and focus on. As, as you bring in people or as you've brought in people from larger companies, how do you help them succeed on the one hand because sometimes they've been used to being treated in a particular way or moving at a certain speed or having access to certain resources and then on the other hand people who've not grown up in the larger in a, in a larger agency for example can feel they can feel a bit slighted and that could be implicit that all of a sudden the work that they think has high status is going to these new people and at the same time you hear these tropes you know in planning for example i've heard a lot of people Sort of, sort of apologize to me when I've worked with them about not being a quote unquote classically trained planner. And I'm like, hmm. what is, what's that? Does that mean that you worked in London and studied Greek or like philosophy <laughs> or something? I, don't, I didn't actually know what it means. So how, how do you help the person coming in from a larger place settle while also helping the people who've settled adapt to people with different kinds of experience? Yeah, I, I love that. That's a great question. The, so let me start with the people who have grown up here because some of our first hires were strategists and planners. Uh, they were from larger agencies. They were from Mal or Goodby or BBDO. And, and, but we were attracted to each other in our early days because they were not satisfied with the traditional limitations on them as planners. They wanted to do more. They wanted to pitch ideas. They wanted to project manage. They wanted mm. to have client relationships. Like they, they wanted to spread their wings. And that was something we were able to offer those people in, in our early days. Uh, and it worked really well for us because uh, the conceptual ideas were all over the place. And that was what we were selling because we weren't, we couldn't compete with those bigger agencies. We had to compete in the places they weren't focused. So it allowed us to do some of that. But then we grew. And those planners are these interesting, culturally minded, creative people who we forced in the early days to be account managers and creatives and strategists and project managers because there was no one else to do it. And then suddenly we're, you know, a hundred person, 200 person agency a few years later. Uh, and there is a need for I don't, I mean, traditional planning in a sense, or our version of it, like the creative teams do need a tight brief. And there's a lot of 
core things that need to get done. And those planners had to kind of take a step back and say, and, and re, re-educate themselves on what the best ways to do those things, what the giant spoon way of doing those things were. Uh, and then also figure out when they step back and let the creatives do their thing and, and not try to overstep too much. And, and again, put in place a process that allows them to have more of a role than they have maybe in a traditional agency, but again, respecting people's expertise and specialty and training. So that's been a process. And then on the note of bringing in people who are more senior, who have spent their careers uh, at larger institutions, I think part of the thing that has been amazing about that is that my partners and I love when someone has institutional knowledge that we don't have, that helps us operate our business in smarter ways, that helps us think of processes that we didn't understand, uh, and that helps us just get better. And then I think what we tell people in that interview process is take what's good about those big places and teach us and take what's bad about them and throw them out because that's the opportunity that we have building this thing from scratch is that there's things that agencies figured out 50 years ago that still work and are great. What are those things? And let's do them. And then there are things that are just there because of legacy. Let's throw those things out. And it's a constant conversation to, to identify those things. And, and usually the people come here, come here because they're, because they're sick of those legacy things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they have a natural inclination to not try to implement them here. Do, do you feel that there have been new skills, departments, roles, I, I don't know what language you would personally use, but that, that, that you've introduced as a company that you might have mishandled or that have created like a sense of confusion and, and quiet panic in a way that you probably could have avoided. And like one example is having worked in a few places, like digital agencies that didn't have account management. When account management was brought in, often the producers felt slighted because they're like, hang on, that's my client. I, use, I go to the meetings. I deal with the client all the time. What's my role now? And that can lead to this little swirl. Have you stumbled through any decisions like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the the one I've already talked about where we had strategy had to then make room for creative, um, but our strategists then also had to make room for account people. Mm. So, you know, that was... Probably, I mean, if we're seven years in, I think we introduced true, you know, professional account management maybe three years in to the organization. Mm-hmm. And at first, the strategists who were playing that client relations role to a certain degree had to, they wrote account management off as project management. Uh, and they didn't understand that account management at its best is a mini CMO who understands the client's business, who someone who is strategic, someone who is figuring out how to work this giant spoon system to get the best out of our system to apply it to those clients, to, to do the things we were talking about where we make sure those clients are open to hearing those different types of ideas and ultimately project management to make sure we're professional and buttoned up and have the notes and, and don't allow uh, scope creep and don't allow us to be taken advantage of in rounds of reviews and, and, and client hierarchy. Like that is a, a, a discipline that I think our organization had to learn to understand what it is at its best and then find those people and then integrate those people into our system. And, and once it, we did, it was a game changer for our ability to handle you know, doing bigger, better, and, and different work. So that mm-hmm. was definitely one. Uh, and then the other piece of it too, you know, we have a really robust media division of the company. I mean, we are a media AOR for, you know, GE and One Medical and Mass Mutual and Synchrony Financial, uh, San Diego Zoo, a lot of big companies were the media AOR. And our me- the reason we won that the media business is because our media department uh, 
differentiates itself on media creativity, on ideas, on customization, on uh, working with key partners to reinvent formats. Uh, and then when you have a media department that is grounded in creativity, how is that going to work with the strategy people who are also grounded in creativity and a creative department? And then even when we use our media dollars to have content created for us by a media partner, then what kind of job is that to oversee creative direct a third party partner who's creating content on behalf of your brands? And where does that job fit? So it's really a, a, a constant puzzle that we never stop working on uh, from a process standpoint. Yeah, there has to be a constant calibration, I think, in any company that wants to do good creative work because you have to calibrate not just to the individual group of clients, but to their company, to your team, and that team might change a little bit from project to project. Like You have to do quite a lot of mental and emotional processing working in this, in this industry. We just don't often talk about it in an, yeah. an accessible way. Uh, one thing that I believe is true is that in high-performing organizations and with high-performing individuals, that there are clear and high expectations set. How do you talk about the company's clear and high expectations of the team? Yeah, that, I mean, that's been really hard. I, I think, you know, what we try to do is constantly tell our origin story and the philosophy behind the origin story to new hires. Uh, we do it regularly through different formats internally. We, we try to keep that mythology alive because the mythology is what people are buying into. We've had people, you know, in the organization, especially some of those early hires, they say, we want Kool-Aid to drink, but you guys have to give us the Kool-Aid. So we're really uh, conscious about constantly, um, whether it's emails, whether it's uh, all agency gatherings, whether it's cultural events, like whatever we're going to do, we're going to weave that, our philosophy, our founding philosophy into those conversations, and then it becomes part of the culture. So we hope that that keeps people sort of driven on high performance and not, a, not comfortable settling and, and pushing each other to that degree. I think the thing that's been harder uh, because we we're so fast growth for so many years has been doing all the things that are a little bit more traditional in terms of our review process and our feedback process and training our young managers who grew up with us to manage and give feedback and push people. And, you know, not just, you know, when someone's not performing, just do the work for them because it's easier if you just do it. Like those are the things that have been a little bit more difficult that we're just starting to get better at in the last couple of years as we've, um, as we've up-leveled our HR operations to, to really lean into those things, learning and development, career pathing, feedback, review cycles, obviously finding better way, again, like throwing out the bad legacy stuff and trying to continue to, to make it incrementally better every time we do it. But that stuff has been harder than just kind of culturally infusing this idea of high performance and, and, and envelope pushing. Mm. I also want to give a little shout out to myself. I said butting up earlier and I feel that that was also a follow through of the spoon the spooning, yeah. metaphor. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Want, I, I, want, I like that. I want props for that. <laughs> uh, so you talked about creativity and media. Now, personal experience, a few years around the New York scene is that, yes, there are very creative people in media agencies, but I don't see them as competitive and hungry and difficult really actually compared to a lot of the media agencies that I worked with in Sydney where they're like trying to steal your work all the time and they're trying to pitch ideas and maybe even like pitch TV ads every now and then. Yep. And then I've spoken to people I know here who, who run pretty big 
sometimes global CEO situations or whatnot. And I'm like, what is it about New York? Like, where, where's the where's the stuff we used to fight about back in Sydney? And the attitude is often that it, it's just such it's such big scale here, and it's yeah. so high stakes. And I think, from what I understand, that in the media industry, at least, because there's been so much margin pressure on on all agencies, but especially media agencies, that it's become like get bums on seats and specialize and and don't don't stir things up too much. I don't know if that is true, and I don't know if you relate to it, but your company name has definitely come up when I've asked people about who's doing media in creative ways. Can you tell us about your philosophy specifically around media and, and how do you encourage a, a culture of creativity within people who are doing media planning? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, it's it's actually, it's funny because so, so my partners and I, we all came from uh, OMD before we, before we started Giant Spoon. The, the weird thing was, is we were not media people. So we were inside of the OMD ecosystem. Uh, and my job there, I was the chief innovation officer for the US. But I, I took that to be, my, my worst fear was for that job to mean I was going to be, you know, a conference uh, going to talking head. It was really for me about <laughs> building businesses inside of OMD that were driven to push innovation. So we had built, we built a group there called Ignition Factory. Um, and we built a group that was figuring out to how brands get into gaming. And we built a group that was built uh, and the, the Ignition Factory group was designed about pushing creativity in media. Uh, and we, figured we were working on inventing the mobile PL and the branded entertainment PL and the, all of the things that at that time were around the edges of media, but were areas that media had the right to play because the media dollars could drive that creativity in those, in those spaces, experiential even. And so we, we kind of knew when we were building it, and this was, I don't know, 2000 six or seven to 2013, we knew when we were building it that we were building a Band-Aid. We were building departments that lived around the edges of a giant organization that ultimately had to become the core of the thing. Uh, And then what became the commodity uh, would be the scale and the programmatic and the ad tech and all of those things that everybody was investing in in much bigger ways at the time. Um, So we built those things around the edges and created a culture of it. But then when we started Giant Spoon, that's the, we couldn't compete on uh, data and analytics and and programmatic and ad tech. Uh, We had to compete on creativity. We had to compete on ideas. Uh, which means that maybe we could never win a 200 plus million dollar media billings client because again, like you said, that stuff is really at such a volume and scale that the creativity is back to the edges. But when you have a a client that spends anywhere between 20 and a hundred million dollars in media in the, in the U S alone, they've got to do some creative stuff to break through. And so suddenly it makes more sense to hire an agency like ours that's going to lead with big ideas that are going to, you know, as our head of media and, and our now partner, uh, Laura Carrenti says, it's, you know, it's one thing to, to buy an impression, but it's another thing to make one. And I think that's something that we believe in really strongly and have had it be a core to who we are, who we hire in media and how we train them. Our media people uh, at, at their best are, are some of the most creative business-minded, smart people uh, that, that I've ever worked with and, and, and are really pushing the envelope constantly. So, uh, I, it, but again, it, I think it's hard to scale because I think you're right that there isn't a ton of those people out there. A lot of them 
are homegrown and we, we got them when they were really starting out and saw something special in some people and they, they grew up in our system and kind of have always thought about media that way. But when you go back to the bigger legacy agencies, you know, when they were really kind of in this second seat to creative and were very transactional, there's not a ton of those types of people. They're there and you have to find them. And then if we can kind of grab those people and then add them to our system and then continue to grow new people, that's where we'll win and continue to win in media creativity. Mm, yeah, a huge fan. I, I love it. And I, I love people who identify as being a, a media person, but who bring a creative flair to it. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to see. I don't think it's difficult to coach. A lot of it might have to be innate in the individual, just curious and yeah. interested in weird things, but at the same time, not hard to coach. It's just not, a, I don't think enough cultures encourage it. Uh, but just as a way to try to understand the agency's philosophy, a template is a template is a template, but what are some of the key questions or prompts that are on your creative brief template that you're able to share? Oh man. I, I mean, I think we obsess, we obsess with culture. Uh, so we really try to, in our creative briefs, really try to contextualize culture uh, as much as possible. We even have, we've paused it in the uh, COVID-19 era, but we, we have always had a culture fund where we allow everyone in the company a stipend of a certain amount of money to just go do things and experience things in the world uh, that they wouldn't have otherwise done so they can bring that cultural experience back to the agency and inform what goes into our insights and our strategies and our briefs. So the cultural nuance of our briefs, I think, is something that we really are proud of and obsess on. We also have a thing in our, in our strategic work that we call the bridge. And what the bridge is, is about translating either brand purpose or brand North Star or even just an insight into engagement. So spending a lot of time saying, all right, here's our, here's our big thought, but then here's how we see it playing out in the world. And even if that's sample tactics or sample sort of brand behaviors that may not be even advertising, we make sure that we're always saying, all right, what's the bridge from this insight into real world engagement and activation? And so we have a lot of work built around that. And we'll even take that bridge process to say, all right, how does this idea, this brand idea, this insight bridge into culture for your, where, what your brand has the right to talk about today versus six months from now, versus 18 months from now, versus three years from now, uh, when we're really given the opportunity to help build what a brand stands for in a, in a more longer term, meaningful way. So those are two things that I think okay. we, we focus on. Uh, and I, I don't think I've heard a clear definition to this yet. It's not because you haven't tried, it's because I haven't asked, but in case I have, hey, you might be repeating yourself right now. <laughs> but what does the word culture mean when, when you use it? I think it means, what is it that is moving people? What is it that people are engaged in and excited about and is sort of the leading thing in their consciousness? So what culture is very different for many different groups. I mean, I, I remember in a very short period of time, we dug into the culture of IT decision makers uh, and recontextualized who that group is for one of our big you know, technology clients and realized they were talking to an old trope of who they thought they were. When you dug into their culture, you saw that they were on, they were on Reddit. They communicate via memes and jokes. Uh, they are gamers. Uh, they're snarky. There's all these contextual cultural elements about how they engage in the world that are so different than when you just think of them as IT people uh, in a traditional sense and in the context of their jobs. And then at the same time, 
we were doing a study for you know a toy brand on the culture of eight-year-old girls uh, and what they saw as important in their lives and and what was important to them about kindness about what was important to them about creativity what made them nervous what kept them up at night to me that's the that's the culture of eight-year-old girls and that's the culture of it decision makers on a micro level but you know then you know laddering that up to larger and larger groups okay very very cool i mean so some of the first principles that i'm hearing as far as you know how do, how do you do good creative work uh include clear and high expectations having a clear compelling use case when you start out knowing you might have to recalibrate as you grow but also trying to stay true to it so some part of your history resonates into the future uh getting people around a round table so they can have proper conversations trying to help people adapt from different cultures and uh, a management team that's still pretty involved in the work i, I think there can be a, a temptation for some people to overmanage. i often hear people complaining about ceos especially who might come across it as being complete narcissists and <laughs> try to dominate everything. And on the other hand, there are some people who just start to disappear from the building after a few years, but there, there probably needs to be some kind of physical presence over the shoulder there. So it's uh, really interesting to hear the way that you've built this business. Definitely not easy right now. Last couple of questions here, you know, COVID-19, you've got pretty big company really in the scheme of things and in the history of advertising. So a lot of responsibility there. You've got clients who are going through a lot of stuff right now, a lot of doubt, some downsizing. Some companies are sitting on hordes of cash and they're not sure what they should be doing with it. How, how do you encourage proactivity and what kind of proactivity is useful right now? Yeah, no, we're, I mean, we're obsessing about this now. I mean, I, I think there's business reasons to be proactive, to make sure that there's still opportunities for us to do work. Uh, we're we're lucky in the sense that we're pretty diversified. Our our experiential business uh, really is you know in a got hit hard because obviously people aren't physically getting together, but you know across all fronts. So with experiential, it's you know everyone's pivoting to virtual events. But what's our role in virtual events? Our our experiential business got famous for creating immersive, narrative-driven theater. Uh, so what does that look like in a virtual digital world? So proactively bringing clients that might still have business reasons to find, uh, to bring customers together, to give them something to feel community around. We can now think about what immersive, narrative-driven experiences look like virtually. When there are a million people who can do live streaming, we're not going to proactively go after everyone and say, hey, we can do a live stream for you because uh, that's just table stakes and that's not something that we can bring that's special. Or uh, having our strategists go around to all of our clients and give them the history of what happened to brands during recessions. So, you know, COVID-19 is now, but the next phase of this is an economic recession to whatever degree it's going to be. So let's look back historically and say, who grows market share, who succeeds, who comes out of the recession faster, and what, what were their marketing behaviors uh, that led to that. So shopping that around and making sure we're being proactive allies to our, to our clients who some of them in the marketing side need that data to be able to go to their business counterparts and make sure that they don't completely defund marketing because that actually isn't the right thing to do for the business, even though it's an easy line item to cut. So on a strategy front, doing that kind of work. And then, you know, really figuring out from our business, are there revenue models that we can create that may not rely on our clients? Original IP, uh, what, what can we do there? And how can we sell that? How can we maybe create an original idea and 
go sell it to brands who maybe aren't our clients or sell it to distributors uh, who need content right now. Um, so we're really getting aggressive on all fronts. And I think what comes out of this is when the core business gets back to some closer sense to stability and normalness, we're going to have a lot of new arrows in our quiver as a business to continue to grow and evolve and be ready for whatever the world looks like coming out of this. So I really think that's the way to lean into what we're going through right now from a crisis is with creativity, both for our clients, but for our business as well. So that's, that's something we really, really spend a lot of time talking about on a daily basis. Yeah, the question how to use this crisis to diversify the revenue streams is, is it's a question that I don't think the holding companies are going to be, that's a difficult question for the holding companies. If you're independent, you have other kinds of difficulties in crisis, but the fact that you could potentially create your own IP, which again is one of those dreamy statements that comes out of the mouths of people who run agencies, really hard to do, right? It is. Um, but the fact that you're able to think about it and try it is incredible. How are you specifically approaching that part of things right now? Is there a process around it? Is it just like, has anybody got any good ideas? How do you do with that? <laughs> so, I mean, we talked about Spoonshots at the beginning, but we opened a, a Spoonshots Slack channel where everyone in the company is just constantly posting crazy ideas. And we kind of want to be clear that those crazy ideas can be for Giant Spoon to do or for one of our existing clients or for a brand that we don't even work with. And we'll find, if the idea is good enough, we'll find a way to connect with someone at that brand and bring them the idea. And those ideas, you know, they, they need to be thoughtful. Like we don't want to just bring people a, you know, a crazy, fun, stunty idea if their business is struggling. But maybe we think of a new business model or a new revenue stream uh, for a brand that's out there that maybe hasn't thought of it and we can bring that to them. Uh, or, you know, so we're, we're pushing everyone in the company to be thinking that way. And then our leadership team is meeting about it constantly. And there's already, you know, several things that we're in full steam kind of working on that have come out of it, including um, an initiative that we have some major players involved on that we're actually going to make no money on, but it's a, a really exciting cause initiative to raise money for small businesses around, around the country. So that's going to lead to like some, so a really interesting PSA that we'll be able to create that's going to lead to some serious fundraising that's going to lead to basically a, a show that goes on air that's a fundraising show on, on linear television, uh, as well as a bunch of different brands coming in and providing services to small businesses at no cost. So that's something that came out of one of our Spoonshot discussions that we're in full swing on creating and that, that we're really proud of. And then there's things like that that are designed to generate revenue for us because we, we are a small business ultimately too and need to continue to figure out where we're going to get new revenue now and over the next you know 12 months. Mm. Okay, I'll give you two final questions. The first one is, what's the dynamic within the management team like right now? Are your interactions changing or are you just a level-headed group of individuals who gets on with things? How are you turning up for each other right now? I mean, we've, we've always been really level-headed and just get on with things. Like we, you know, we, obviously in, in any company you have structures of, of how dis, ultimately decisions can get made. And, and if there's a, 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 a decision that needs to be made that people disagree on, what's, the, what's, what's in the bylaws of the company that, that tell you how that decision, who gets the final say on that? And we've all, in, the, in the history of the company, we've almost never had to go and use any of those things because we just all talk talk and agree uh, and, and, and make decisions. And it's all very cordial, which is nice. Uh, but I think in this time, 
we, I feel like I've been talking to my partners more than I have over the last seven years. We're on video conferences for hours at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, either about these new revenue th- opportunities, these spoonshot ideas, or uh, issues that we want to address for our clients. And I feel like we're, we're one team more than we ever were in, in the past. I think sometimes we would just, you know, put our blinders on and deal with the things that were right in front of each of us and then come back together and report on it's going well, it's not going well, but now we're, we're problem solving together. And I think part of that is being at home and using these video chat platforms is kind of just taking a little bit of the friction out of, out of getting together. Uh, mm. And maybe we're not running around the offices, just dipping into meetings and annoying people, like you said, uh, mm. before we're actually available to each other. And then like, what, what sort of, I was going to say, what sort of work have you done to try to work out what's going on in the heads of your employees? You know, I've, I've asked questions on, on the internet to people and they'll answer in ways that they probably couldn't answer to their bosses or necessarily even in front of each other. But for people who are gainfully employed right now, obviously just being employed can carry guilt because they might be seeing people losing jobs and they might not be feeling great. Then they feel guilty that they're not feeling great, even though they've got a job. So who are they to feel bad? A lot of the strategy folk that I know are feeling really overwhelmed by how much information they have to take in right now. They feel that they're stapled to the news cycle and it's hurting them a lot. And then in giving advice within their agencies or to clients, they feel the need not just to know everything, but to be right. And so there's, there's this toll that's getting taken out on a lot of people in the world. And it's not to say that strategy folk or agency folk have it more difficult than anybody else. It's just to acknowledge that some of them, not all, some of them are going through difficulties. Uh, and some of them also feel that they have to be on Zoom calls for like 12 hours a day and often dominated by the extroverts who need to see everybody and to see everybody working. Yeah. How are you talking to the, your company about getting through the emotional and mental turmoil right now? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think we could probably do a better job about talking to people on a one-on-one basis. I know our managers are doing it. Our, you know, our HR people are super, you know, emotionally aware and, and doing it. And, and we're thinking a lot about people who may have someone sick or who have their kids in their home with them and, and trying to make sure that they're okay. Um, uh, uh, or some of them even who have a healthcare worker as a spouse or someone that lives in their home with them uh, are under uh, extreme you know, pressure right now. Uh, we're, we try to be very understanding and flexible on people's workloads if they can't handle it uh, and, 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 and move things around there. I think the other, the main thing that we're doing is just multiple times a week getting the, the offices together at least on, a, on our larger call and just talking through as transparently as possible, what's going on with the business, what's going on with our core clients who are stable, what's going on with all of the outward facing proactive work we're doing, what new opportunities we're chasing down. And I think giving people as much information as possible, at least through the context of their job and business, uh, has been something that is the little piece that we can do to give people some peace of mind in terms of at least they know what's happening. So I, I, someone asked me when we had one of our leadership retreats that I talked about before last year, if you could go back and change one thing from the beginning of Giant Spoon, what's the thing that you would change? And it occurred to me in that moment that it was, I would have 
erred on the side of over-communicating because I think it's really easy to protect people from problems or to keep the business strategy close to the vest or various things that you just kind of get trained to do in maybe more corporate environments that if we just talk as openly as possible about it, people are on our side and people feel better uh, about their jobs and, 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 and their role in this company. So I think over-communicating is the best thing that we, we are doing and, and try to keep doing as much as possible. Awesome. Well, it's been great to hear the story of Giant Spoon today. John, where can people find you personally on the internet? Where, where are you most active? Uh, probably Twitter. Uh, and it's uh, at J-O-N-H-A-B-E-R, at John Haber. But I have to warn you that it's probably only half advertising stuff and half just ridiculous, embarrassing thoughts I have throughout the day. That seems like a very sane way to be on the internet. Not, <laughs> not embarrassing at all. And, and obviously, if people want to find out about the company, they can go to www.giantspoon.com. John, thank you so much for joining me on Sweathead today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Peace.